Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 16, the fourth of several parts concerning the Sumerians. Last week, I covered what is called the Early Dynastic Period of the Sumerians. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This episode begins when the Akkadians show up. So let's get started. As I covered in previous episodes, the Sumerians were indirectly mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 due to their association with the city of Uruk. But to be specific, in verse 10, the New International Version lists the city of Uruk spelled U-R-U-K, while both the New Revised Standard and the King James Versions listed as Eric, spelled E-R-E-C-H. I should have mentioned this a few episodes ago, probably when I covered Leonard Woolley, and how before his discovery, many people believed the city to have existed only in myth. And this belief may have led to the different spellings and pronunciations. Today I'm covering the Akkadians. They were mentioned in the same chapter of Genesis, in verse 8. Genesis reads, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He was the first on earth to become a mighty warrior. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, and Akkad, all of them in the land of Shinar. To review the last episode, early dynastic period, which ran from about 2900 to 2300 BC, saw the subtle shift from a priest-king to a more modern-day concept of a king known as a lugal, loosely translated as the phrase big man. The various city-states assumed during this time fought each other for control of the arable land and irrigation water until the rise of the first dynasty of Lagash in about 2500 BC. Under their king, Eantuam, Lagash became the center of a small empire which included most of Sumer and parts of neighboring Elam. This empire existed through the king Lugosagasi in about 2300 BC, when a young man seized the throne. This young man would become known as Sargon the Great of Akkad. As you probably could have guessed, Sargon was an Akkadian, which was a Semitic group of desert nomads who eventually settled in Mesopotamia, just north of Sumer. The Sumerian king, Lugosagasi, tried to form a coalition of Sumerian city-states against Sargon, but he was defeated by the Akkadians. Sargon is considered by many to be the first empire builder. He made Akkad the capital of his empire. And as a sidebar, as we progress through history and through time, we come across what can be considered more reliable information concerning the people of the time. Also, we are slowly coming to the era where we can get images of the specific people, too. This is somewhat the case with Sargon. On the podcast Facebook page, I'll post a photo of a bronze casting which is most likely Sargon of Akkad, but for accuracy, it could also be the image of Naramsen. It was uncovered in Nineveh and is presently at the National Museum of Iraq in Baghdad. But back to Akkad. The existence of Akkad is known only from textual sources, its location has not yet been identified, although scholars have proposed a number of different sites. Most recent proposals point to a location east of the Tigris. In my mind, Akkad is waiting on its Leonard Woolley. The earliest records in the Akkadian language date to the time of Sargon. Sargon was said to be the son of Lilibum, a humble gardener and a priestess to Ishtar or Enanna. One legend related to Sargon and told by the Assyrians claimed that she bore him in secret and then set him in a basket of rushes, sealing its lid with tar. 
She then set him in a river which carried him to Aki, their god of water. Aki took him in as his son and reared him. Aki also appointed him as his gardener. Later claims made on behalf of Sargon were told that his mother was a high priestess. These claims might have been made to ensure that he was thought of as nobility, considering that in that time only a son from a high-placed family could be made into a king. Sargon, in other sources, was originally cup-bearer to the king of Kish with a Semitic name, Ur-Zababa. Sargon then became a gardener, responsible for the task of clearing out irrigation canals. In doing so, this gave him access to a disciplined corps of workers, who may have also served as his first soldiers. This job taught him how to organize men into a force. Somehow, he displaced Ur-Zababa and was crowned king. Then entering a career of foreign conquest, he invaded Syria and Canaan four times and spent three years thoroughly subduing the countries of what was considered the West, uniting them with Mesopotamia and forming a single empire. Then, Sargon took the process further, conquering many of the surrounding regions to create an empire that reached westward as far as the Mediterranean Sea and perhaps even the island of Cyprus. It then went north and as far as the mountains, probably meaning Anatolia in modern-day Turkey. The kingdom went east into Elam in present-day southwestern Iran on the shores of the Persian Gulf. It also went as far south as Megan, probably in present-day Oman and on the extreme southeastern tip of the Arabian Peninsula at the confluence of the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean. But the exact location of Megan is unknown, and some researchers have suggested other areas. Either way, his empire was large even by today's standards, and especially for that region of the world. Overall, he consolidated his power over these territories by replacing the earlier opposing rulers with noble citizens of Akkad, his native city, and therefore ensuring the loyalty of the rulers of these far-flung territories. During the Akkadian Empire, trade extended from the silver mines of Anatolia to the jewel mines of Afghanistan, the cedars of Lebanon, and the copper of Megan. This consolidation of Sumer and Akkad reflected the growing economic and political power of Mesopotamia. The empire's breadbasket was the rain-fed agricultural system of northern Mesopotamia, protected by organized fortresses built to control the imperial wheat production. Images of Sargon were erected on the shores of the Mediterranean as memorials to his military victories. Some of the earliest historiographic texts suggest that he rebuilt the city of Babylon, but in a new location near Akkad. Sargon, throughout his life, is thought to have worshipped the Sumerian deities, particularly Ishtar and Zababa, the warrior god of Kish. He is said to have called himself the anointed priest of Anu and the high priest of Enlil, but internal strife grew at the end of his reign, with a later Babylonian text stating that all the lands revolted against him, and they surrounded him in Akkad. He then attacked them in battle and defeated them, destroying their great army. The same text refers to his campaign in Elam, where he defeated a coalition army led by the king of Awan, where he forced the defeated leaders to become his servants. Now to be clear, we don't really know if these accounts are literally true, but considering that history is written by the victors, we can assume with some certainty that he did emerge victorious. The Elam campaign was followed by another revolt where the mountainous tribes of Assyria attacked, but they too were defeated. Afterwards, Sargon punished them greatly. Apparently, Sargon was an excellent military commander, 
organizing his armies into different units, including donkey-drawn war chariots. These chariots were used to scare and trample his enemies. Now, I've spent enough time around donkeys, both the posterior and the whole animal, enough time to not be terribly terrified by either of them. And it's hard for me to imagine anything being drawn by a donkey to be intimidating. But then again, my perspective is modernly skewed. Sargon's whole family has made a mark on history. Sargon's daughter, Enhi Duanna, was the world's first credited author because she signed her name to a set of poems she apparently wrote about her gods and goddesses. Sargon's son and grandson ruled after him, but eventually the Akkadian Empire fell and was replaced by the Third Dynasty of Ur. More specifically, the Akkadian Empire collapsed in 2154 BC, within 180 years of its founding, ushering in what is known as a Dark Age, meaning that the history of the period is pretty much unknown. There was a regional decline that lasted until the rise of the Third Dynasty of Ur in 2112 BC, but backing up a bit, by the end of the reign of Sargon's great-grandson, Sharkali-Shari, the empire had weakened and there was a period of anarchy between 2192 and 2168 BC. Shu-Durul, who ruled from 2168 to 2154 BC, appears to have restored some central authority. However, he was unable to prevent the empire eventually collapsing outright from the invasion of barbarian peoples from the Zargos Mountains, known as the Gutians, leading to what has been creatively dubbed the Gutian Period. After the fall of the Akkadian Empire, the Akkadian people of Mesopotamia eventually merged into two major Akkadian-speaking nations, with Assyria in the north, and a few centuries later, Babylonia in the south. I'll cover both of these in the future. The Sumerian king list reinforces the history, describing the Akkadian Empire after the death of Sharkali-Shari, as such that Uruk was smitten with weapons and its kingship carried off by the Gutian hordes. Little is known about the Gutian period, or exactly how long it lasted. Cuneiform tablets suggest that they showed little concern for maintaining agriculture, written records, or public safety. In this regard, it is probably fair to characterize them as barbarians. It has been suggested that they released all livestock to roam about Mesopotamia freely, and that practice, along with other similar practices, soon brought about famine and soaring grain prices. But, if you will pardon the pun, they may have been scapegoated. The decline apparently coincided with a severe drought, possibly connected with climatic changes reaching all across the area from Egypt to Greece. The climate is part of our international discourse today, and it was no doubt a large part of such dialogue for the Sumerians and Akkadians, too. Recent research has suggested that the decline at the end of the Akkadian period was associated with a rapidly increasing drought, with the lack of rain in the region being associated with a global, century-long period of drought. Around 2200 BC, following a theorized volcanic eruption, a distinct decrease in rain with a possible increase in wind circulation caused a considerable decrease in agriculture. This drought did not only impact Mesopotamia, but evidence of it has also been found in Egypt, Spain, China, North America, and even in caves in Italy. After four centuries of an urban and prosperous period for the region, the drought may have contributed to the collapse of the Akkadian Empire. It may also have been the reason the Gutians descended from the mountains. It was also at this time that the Old Kingdom, which will be covered later, collapsed in Egypt, 
and the Longshans declined in China. It truly was a global event. Evidence from Tel Lalan, located in northern Mesopotamia and in present-day extreme northeastern Syria, near the border with Turkey and Iraq, indicates what may have occurred. The site was abandoned soon after the city's massive walls were constructed, its temple reconstructed, and its grain production reorganized. Given all the activity at the time, to abandon it was highly unusual. The debris, dust, and sand that followed showed no trace of human activity at all. Soil samples show fine, wind-blown sand, no indication of earthworm activity, reduced rainfall, and indications of a drier, windier climate. Evidence shows that sheep and cattle starved to death, and up to 28,000 people abandoned the site, potentially looking for food and water elsewhere. Another city in the region, Telbrak, shrank in size by 75%. Their trade collapsed. Nomadic herders such as the Amorites moved herds away, obviously preferring to be closer to reliable water supplies, which also brought them into conflict with the Akkadian populations. The collapse of rain-fed agriculture in the northern part of the empire also meant that the southern area, which was drier to begin with, would suffer too. Water levels within the Tigris and Euphrates rivers fell an estimated 5 feet, or 1.5 meters, lower than the level at 2600 BC. Now keep in mind that the rivers were not terribly deep to begin with, and this represented a drastic reduction in water volume. As would be expected, especially in an agricultural economy, these conditions led to a severe economic depression, which coincided with the collapse of the Akkadians and the rise of the Gutians. But back to the history. The last Gutian king, Tyragan, was driven out by a Sumerian king, with some sources citing Ur-Nammu, who ruled from 2112 to 2095 BC, and other sources citing Utuhingal of Uruk. This began what has been called the Sumerian Renaissance. The third dynasty of Ur arose sometime after the fall of the Akkadians, but the date of the transition is unclear. The period between the last powerful king of the Yakid dynasty, Shar Kalishari, and the first king of the third dynasty, Ur-Namu, is not well documented. On the king list, Shar Kalishari is followed by two more kings of Akkad and six in Uruk. However, there are no specific years given, nor any discovered artifacts confirming that any of these reigns were actually historical. Well, with the exception of one artifact for Dudu of Akkad, who was Shar Kalishari's immediate successor on the list. Ur-Nammu was originally a military commander, and apparently founded the third dynasty of Ur, but the precise events surrounding his rise are unclear. It is possible that Ur-Nammu was originally the governor. Now there are two stone slabs discovered in Ur that state that Ur-Nammu was a governor, but some scholars theorize that Ur-Nammu led a revolt, deposing a ruler whose name I'm not going to bother with, and seized control of the region through force. Another hypothesis is that Ur-Nammu was a close relative to he who shall not be named. Either way, after four years of ruling Ur, Ur-Nammu rose to prominence as a warrior king when he crushed the ruler of Lagash in battle, killing the king of Lagash himself. After this battle, Ur-Nammu seemed to have earned the title of King of Sumer and of Agade. It was also during this period, documents again began to be written in Sumerian. Although Sumerian was becoming a purely literary or liturgical language, similar to the evolution of Latin in medieval Europe, Ur's dominance over the Neo-Sumerian Empire was consolidated with the legendary Code of Ur-Nammu, 
most likely the first such law code for Mesopotamia since that of Uruk-Hadjina of Lagash centuries earlier. I'm always interested in these early laws, as they provide some insight into the society of the time. Of course, that leads me to wonder what future archaeologists will think of us, especially with some arcane laws still on the books and our voluminous tax code. Anyway, a little on the code itself. It is recognized that earlier law codes existed, such as the previously covered Code of Ur-Kajina, but the Code of Ur-Namu represents the earliest extant legal text. It is about 300 years older than the Code of Hammurabi. The laws are arranged in the form of if-then statements, such as if a man commits murder, then that man must be killed. This pattern is followed in nearly all later codes. To be the oldest extant law code known to history, it is considered remarkably advanced, primarily because it institutes fines of monetary compensation for bodily damage, instead of the later eye-for-an-eye principle seen in Babylonian law. But murder, robbery, adultery, and rape were all punishable by death. The code reveals a glimpse into the structure of the society during the so-called Sumerian Renaissance. At the top was the king, followed by free people, then the slaves. There were many laws, and I'm not going to recite them all. If you want to read them all, they aren't terribly difficult to find. But I will touch on a few of the more interesting ones. If a man knocks out the eye of another man, he shall pay half a mina of silver. Now this begs that we attempt to quantify what this was worth. One mina was worth about 60 shekels, and one shekel was about 8.3 grams, meaning that a mina was close to 500 grams. As of today, a gram of silver is worth about half a U.S. dollar. That means that the knocked-out eye was worth about $250. Well, not exactly, because this assumes that the worth of silver has remained constant over the past 4,000 years. Honestly, given the Industrial Revolution and how easy it is to mine and refine silver today, there is little doubt in my mind that it was far more valuable at that time Let me draw a parallel. The Magi who visited the manger brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is currently going for just north of $1,300 per ounce, but the same amount of frankincense and myrrh can be purchased with a single $20 bill in my pocket. But back to the code. If someone severed the nose of another man with a copper knife, he must pay two-thirds of a mina of silver. I don't know how literally these laws were written, But I think that if copper was inserted in the law, it was because it was what knives were made of at the time. Otherwise, I would leave my copper knife at home and use some other type of metal knife if I intended to commit such a crime. But this was also towards the end of the early Bronze Age. It's curious that a severed nose was worth more than an eye. But then again, you do have two eyes and only one nose. Another law stated that if a man divorces his first-time wife he shall pay her one mina of silver, meaning that this one-time alimony payment was worth two eyes. If it is a former widow he divorces, he shall pay her half a mina of silver. If a man appears as a witness and was shown to be a perjurer, he must pay 15 shekels of silver. Slaves, probably because they had no silver, had different punishments assigned. If a man's slave woman in comparing herself to her mistress, speaks insolently to her. Her mouth shall be scoured with one quart of salt. If a slave marries a free person, 
the slave is to hand the firstborn son over to his owner. It did not mention if the marriage made the slave free, but I kind of doubt it did. And finally, if a man, in the course of a scuffle, smashes the limb of another man with a club, he shall pay one mina of silver, meaning that the limb is worth two eyes, more than a nose, and four times more valuable than the penalty for perjury. Now this points out how the societies of the time were centered on manual labor. If you could not work, you would suffer or die. And with that, it's probably just as good of a stopping point as any for this episode. Next week, I'll continue with the Sumerian Renaissance. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. Believe it or not, this helps others to learn about it. And I've made this next request over the past several weeks now, and many of you have taken me up on it. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, and also go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.